Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 276. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have got a great show lined up. We have got one of the brightest stars in science fiction writing, Ken Liu. A short story today called The Message. I'll tell you what else is coming in today's show. We have, looking back at genre history, then we have that main fiction by Ken Liu, and it's narrated by Nick Cam. Then right at the end, we have Gaming in the Future, Simon Hildebrandt. There we go. What a show. And listen out, because there is a little Easter egg buried away in this show. So just before we get up to the show, just to kind of give you a heads up as well, for Protecting Project Pulp, last week was Dave Robertson's final week, and he bowed out there with a fantastic story. And it was lovely to hear, because Dave had on, you know, all kind of, he had on Tom and Simon, who's going to be, Simon's going to be taking over from Dave, but we also had on Tom, who's the kind of the sound engineer over there as well, and it was lovely, you know what I mean, and... It's, I just wish Dave all the best. Dave's got some great, exciting venture, you know, adventures coming up in his kind of personal life. And I just wish him all the best. And we'll still get to hear him, you know, if you're kind of into the District of Wonders. He's still, you know, we're still going to hit him for stories because he's just got an amazing voice, you know what I mean? But just a lovely guy, do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just such a shame, kind of, me and him are separated by distance, do you know what I mean? It's just... It would be lovely just to sit down and just kind of give him a hug and bear hug and just enjoy a drink. You know what I mean? It would be really nice. But Dave has left the Project Pulp and now in steps Simon into his seat as well. So, like I said, we've got a little short fact article by Simon as well. But I hope you pop over there 
and give Simon some encouragement. You know what I mean? It's a kind of a daunting thing to, to start a podcast, you know what I mean? Even just to start it, but to, to take over halfway through, you know, once Dave's built it up to where it is, and then all of a sudden, bang, you, you've got to do it. That's a kind of mean feat for Simon to kind of take on board. So, Simon, I'm just wishing you luck there. Any help you want? I'm no good at See, see, Dave. No, uh, come to me, sir. But I hope, like I say, everyone can pop over there and have a listen to Simon with Protecting Project Pulp, and just stick there and just see, you know. And please subscribe to it in iTunes and and just put some nice comments on. That would be fantastic. So, looking back at genre history, Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. You may recall that in my last segment, I talked about Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, 1887 to 2000, and some of the works that led up to it, that paved the way for that socialist utopia. Today, I'd like to continue talking about the novel by discussing some of the works that were inspired by it. Now, as I mentioned in my last segment, this book had an immediate remarkable resonance with readers. It became a bestseller. It was translated into 20 languages. Almost overnight, Bellamy Clubs formed to discuss the ideas behind the novel and how they could be practically put into place uh, to be acted upon by interested citizens. As these discussions flourished, some people chose to respond to Bellamy's novel by writing novels of their own and by using the equipment, the ingredients of science fiction. Now, I'll want to look at a couple of these works in depth, but first I want to give you an overview so you have a sense of just how many works were spawned by and part of the discussion begun by Looking backward, for example, there is A.D. 2050, Electrical Development at Atlantis, which came out in 1890 and was written by someone under the pseudonym of a former resident of The Hub. People now believe this may have been John Batchelder, but I'm not sure. Now, what this did was build on the world that Bellamy created, this futuristic socialist utopia in which almost all problems had been solved. This author, a former resident of the Hub, imagines Bellamy's world 50 years after Bellamy described it. In other words, the main character in Looking Backward goes forward to the year 2000 and A.D. 2050 picks up 50 years later. And it turns out that people are tired of living under this nationalism, under this utopian socialism. And so they flee what seemed to be, to Bellamy, a perfect place. They're actually sick of it. They move to a previously undiscovered continent. They call it Atlantis. And they create a form of modified capitalism in answer to or challenge of the utopia that Bellamy described. In the process of creating this new Atlantis, they also repel several invasions from China. It's an interesting response to and, again, reaction against Bellamy's vision, playing out the thought experiment and essentially saying that economic system you described that you thought would be perfect wouldn't be. Here's one that would work better. 
Now let me give you a few other titles of some of the works that were written in response to Looking Backward. There was Looking Further Forward, which was published in 1890 by Richard C. Michaelis. There was Looking Further Backward by Arthur Dudley Vinton. And then people were writing responses to the responses. So you have Ludwig A. Giesler's Looking Beyond, a sequel to Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, and an answer to Looking Further Forward by Richard Michaelis, which came out in 1891. There was Mr. East's Experiences in Mr. Bellamy's World by Conrad Wilbrandt in 1891. Looking Within, The Misleading Tendencies of Looking Backward Made Manifest by J.W. Roberts in 1893. Young West, a sequel to Edward Bellamy's celebrated novel Looking Backward from Solomon Schindler in 1894. And Looking Forward by Harry W. Hillman in 1906. There were other science fiction novels, utopias and dystopias, that joined in this larger discussion of socialism as well without making overt the fact that it was Bellamy's novel to which they were responding. So, for example, you have Anna Bowman Todd's 1887 novel The Republic of the Future or Socialism of Reality, and you have The Unknown Tomorrow, How the Rich Fared at the Hands of the Poor by William LeCue in 1910. As I mentioned in my last segment, I like to think of science fiction not only as the opportunity to have a thought experiment, but also as an invitation to a discussion. And certainly looking backward was a conversation starter that drew more people into his particular thought experiment. And I'd like to talk now about a couple of the heavy hitters who weighed in to respond to Bellamy. Interestingly enough, we're, both were critical of Bellamy's perspective, even though both of them were socialists, and both of them used a form of science fiction to get their point across. The first I'd like to talk about is William Morris, who lived from 1834 to 1896. He was an English textile designer, artist, writer, and libertarian socialist associated with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and the English Arts and Crafts Movement. He was also one of the fathers of modern fantasy, and he had a significant impact on J.R.R. Tolkien. His response to Bellamy was the novel News from Nowhere, or An Epic of Rest, which was published in 1890. In the novel, the narrator, William Guest, falls asleep after returning from a meeting of the Socialist League, and he awakes to find himself in a future society based on common ownership and democratic control of the means of production, in short, socialism. In this future society, there is no private property, no big cities, no authority, no monetary system, no divorce, no courts, no prisons, and no class systems. It's an agrarian society, and it functions simply because the people find pleasure in nature, and therefore they find pleasure in their work. Morris reviewed the novel Looking Backward in The Commonweal on June 21, 1889. In his review, he objected to the idea that people would read Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward and think that they had the blueprint in his imagined society for what all socialists believed. That wasn't the case, he said. He wrote, 
In short, a machine life is the best which Mr. Bellamy can imagine for us on all sides. It is not to be wondered at, then, that this, his only idea for making labor tolerable, is to decrease the amount of it by means of fresh and ever-fresh developments of machinery. I believe that this will always be so, and the multiplication of machinery will just multiply machinery. I believe that the ideal of the future does not point to the lessening of man's energy by the reduction of labor to a minimum, but rather the reduction of pain in labor to a minimum, so small that it will cease to be pain, a dream to humanity which can only be dreamed of till men are even more completely equal than Mr. Bellamy's utopia would allow them to be, but which will most assuredly come about when men are really equal in condition. So what does this mean? This means that, like all science fiction, Morris's utopia is based on the question of what it means to be human. And he says that creating labor-saving devices, uh, a bunch of conveniences that basically separate humanity from labor, isn't feeding what we need as humans. That what we need is work that we love. This is one of the reasons he was part of the arts and crafts movement. He believed that people working with their hands to create unusual, unique, beautiful works fed something in humans' souls. And that this was a celebration of all the good things in humanity. His pastoral view that we needed... Um, decentralized communities, that we needed the freedom to express ourselves through what we created. This was part and parcel of his personal philosophy. Mechanization for the sake of mechanization was not an answer for him. He yearned for the restoration of an organic way of life that utilized machines only to alleviate the burdens which humans might find irksome, as liberators, in essence, not as new slave masters. While Bellamy sought salvation through an omnipotent state, Morris wished for a time when the state itself would have withered away because it just wasn't needed anymore, because people were content, because they were allowed to be three-dimensional, fully realized people. So again, this comes back to what it means to be human. In News from Nowhere, he writes, Go back again, now you have seen us. And your outward eyes have learned that in spite of all the infallible maxims of your day, there is yet a time of rest in store for the world when mastery has changed into fellowship, but not before. Go back again then, and while you live, you will see all round you people engaged in making others live lives which are not their own, while they themselves care nothing for their own real lives. Men who hate life, though they fear death— Go back and be the happier for having seen us, for having added a little hope to your struggle. Go on living while you may, striving with whatsoever pain and labor needs must be, to build up, little by little, the new day of fellowship and rest and happiness. Another author who was moved, after reading Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, to write his own response was one of the great fathers of science fiction himself, H.G. Wells. Now, Wells had written his own and would continue to write his own socialist utopias, so the format of Bellamy's work wasn't outside his comfort zone. But even for Wells, this world that Bellamy describes was just a little too perfect. And so Wells wrote When the Sleeper Wakes, 
1899, which he later revised into The Sleeper Awakes, which he published in 1910. It is a dystopian novel about a man who sleeps for 203 years, waking up in a completely transformed London, where, because of compound interest on his bank accounts, he's become the richest man in the world. His money's been put into a trust, and over the years, this trust, which is known as the White Council, but no, Elrond and Galadriel and Saruman and Gandalf were not involved, the trust uses the unprecedented wealth that has accumulated to establish a vast political and economic world order. So the hero is effectively under house arrest until a group comes to liberate him, and they say they're going to overthrow the White Council, and they want him as the leader of their rebellion. So, in a sense, they want him to help right the wrong that his money made possible because this White Council has become a tyrannical force based on the power that his money provided to them. So the hero, Graham, escapes with the Freedom Fighters, and he learns how the White Council bought the industries and political entities of half the world and established a plutocracy that swept away the remains of a democratic parliament and the remains of the monarchy and kept itself in power. London is portrayed as a dehumanized, industrialized quagmire caught in perpetual darkness. In fact, the lower classes are forced to work day and night in factories. They don't have anything but some cheap amusements to look forward to, but their lives are incredibly dark, both literally and figuratively. If you want to see them as one more step in humanity's devolution toward the Morlocks that H.G. Wells describes in The Time Machine, you can easily do that. Interestingly enough, Wells leaves the work uh, with an uncertain ending. The hero tries to help the revolutionaries and give them a fighting chance, but it's unclear if they're going to be successful in unseating the White Council. Incidentally, this became the inspiration for Woody Allen's 1973 film Sleeper, among other creative works. And so you can see Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, 1887 to 2000, is the gift that keeps on giving. It sparked a number of conversations, not just among readers, but among other writers, or among readers who became writers. And thus, it's a great illustration of how science fiction and its thought experiments bring people into conversation with each other, and works into conversation with each other and makes long-term, international, intergenerational dialogue possible. I look forward to joining you again very soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Ames, thank you so much. We're trying to, oh, we've just been dipping our toes into maybe doing a new lecture with Amy as well sometime in, in this year, so we'll hopefully get, get round to that. And what I'm trying to do, well, I'll keep it under wraps there, the next guest for, or have I mentioned it already? I don't know if I have or not. You know, the mind's a little bit puzzled, but I'll keep that until it's all kind of sorted and finalised. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Ken Liu. 
give you a little heads up about Ken Liu. Ken's fiction has appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov's Analog, Strange Horizon, Lightspeed and Clark's World, amongst other places. He has won a Nebula, a Hugo and a World Fantasy Award. He's also been in there and won a Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award and has been nominated for the Sturgeon and the Locus Awards. He lives near Boston with his family. This story, the message was first kind of first came out in print in the Fantastic Interzone two four two, which was the September October two thousand and twelve edition. And if you have a look on the kind of the the, fan, the you know the kind of internet science fiction database, I love that. I love that site, me. Just Ken is like just a busy writer. You know what I mean? Kind of started writing two thousand and two. With um, a story, Carthinigan Rose, might, might be, I think that's how you might pronounce it. But just say in 2012, you know what I mean? It's just oodles. I'm just going to count them. They're going to forgive us for I haven't counted them already. But 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. 20 stories accepted and published in 2012. Do you know what I mean? It's taken off for this guy. What a, what a cracking writer. And this story is narrated by the, the one and the only Nicholas Cam, Nick Cam. As you know, Nick is a regular on Starship Sofa. He is an actor, voice talent, based in the UK. His credits include everything from Holly Oaks to Macbeth. He also plays one of those Bodrum, is it Bod, Bodran things? Now, this is the uh, diddly diddly music. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> you know the, the kind of, the drum, the kind, and I'm going to say Keely drum, but you know that kind of Irish drum. There. <laughs> Few whiskeys, Nick will get get his drum out. So, Nick, you're a star. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present the message by Ken Liu. The alien city was a perfect circle, about ten kilometers in diameter. From the air, the buildings, cubes around the edge of the city, cones, pyramids, tetrahedra in the middle, were forbidding spikes. Ring-shaped streets divided the city into concentric sections. James Bell banked the two-person shuttle, the Arthur Evans, into a U-turn to pass over the ruins a second time. The thin but powerful man was in his forties, just beginning to lose his hair and showing some white in his beard. He pushed the joystick forward to bring the vehicle lower, staring intently out of the cockpit with his blue eyes. Next to him was thirteen-year-old Maggie, thin and awkward like a newborn colt. She gasped and grabbed onto the handholds above her seat as the ship suddenly dipped. Sorry, James said. Maggie's mother, Lauren, had hated the way he flew too, with all the sudden drops and sharp swerves. A memory of Lauren grabbing onto his arms as he dragged her onto a roller coaster came to him, and he smiled for a moment before a mixture of regret and resentment replaced the memory. He shook away the feeling and levelled the ship. Julia, he said to the ship's AI, take over. Keep it smooth and slow. The AI beeped in acknowledgement. I tend to fly a little recklessly on a planet with a working atmosphere and magnetic field, he rambled on, mostly to fill the silence. Since they keep out the harmful solar and cosmic radiation, I leave the heavy shell with the radiation shields and monitors up in orbit and just bring the core of the shuttle down. The ship manoeuvres so much better this way. Maggie brushed strands of long red hair out of her face and resolutely refused to look at him, keeping her gaze on the alien buildings passing beneath the ship. 
She had been like this ever since she came aboard two days ago, giving him only one or two word answers or saying nothing at all. He had no shared history with her, no background against which to interpret her gestures, no context in which to fill her silences with meaning. He felt awkward in her presence, unsure how to converse. His daughter was more mysterious to him than the many dead civilizations he had studied. Six months ago, just as he was rushing to complete the survey of Pybeo ahead of the terraformers' planned obliteration of the surface of the planet with their asteroids and comets, he received a message from Lauren, the first time he'd heard from her in ten years. She was sick, she said, and was going to die. Maggie needed him. Maggie was born after he and Lauren had split up. Indeed, he hadn't even known about her until Lauren sent him a picture a year after the birth. He'd stared at that picture of the bundle of pink flesh without knowing how to react. He wasn't ready to be a father, and Lauren must have known that, which was why she had said nothing to him as they parted. She had accepted his offer to pay child support without demanding anything more, and he had been relieved. The surprise message from Lauren had caused him to reluctantly drop everything on Pybeo to go to her world. The trip took three months in real time, but only two days in the shuttle with relativistic dilation. By the time he'd finally got there, Lauren was dead, and Maggie had been on her own for two months, mourning her mother and imagining an uncertain future with a father she had never met. With little fanfare and no instructions, he was granted custody of the sullen and grieving teenager. How was he supposed to learn to be a father in the two days it took to come back to Pybeo? James sighed. He didn't like complications in his life. Now that they were back on Pybeo, he had less than a week to complete the survey before the arrival of the comets and asteroids. There's some writing, Maggie said quietly. Inscriptions and images covered the alien buildings, which appeared to be carved out of massive, solid stone. There were no windows or doors. James was surprised but glad that Maggie seemed to take an interest in the ruins. He was comfortable lecturing to curious students. That's one of the reasons I'm interested in this place. Most cultures that get past the Kuni McLean boundary plunge into a digital dark age and stop producing analog writing. All their information becomes locked in fragile digital artifacts and don't survive well and are difficult to decipher. They went digital here too, but these samples. The ship accelerated, lurched, and dropped precipitously. Maggie screamed. James! Julia's voice was urgent. There seem to be errors in the stabilization routines beyond my ability to correct. You have to take over with analog controls. James grabbed the joystick and pulled back sharply. The engines groaned, but it was too late. The ship was falling too fast. Prepare for impact, Julia's voice said. James instinctively reached out to hold Maggie against her seat, as if the strength of his arm was enough to save her from the ground rushing up at them. The robots... Mechanical spiders as big as house cats skittered all over the exterior of the Arthur Evans and examined the surface for damage. Sparks flew as they welded and applied sealant. Well, that should do it, James said as he finished bandaging the cut on Maggie's forehead. Julius saved us by deforming the ship's hull as we crashed to absorb most of the energy. It'll take the robots a few days to repair the ship, but that still gives us plenty of time to leave before the first comments get here. Maggie sat up and felt the bandage with her hand. She flexed her legs and looked over her arms. What am I supposed to do while you work? Just sit here. At least she's talking now, James thought. You can come with me, but...
but I have to work, so I can't watch you every minute. Maggie's lips narrowed. I can take care of myself. I'm not five. I didn't mean... I wish I was in our old house and on my own, instead of almost getting killed here with you. Tears welled in her blue eyes. That stupid judge, he had no clue. That's enough. Maybe it was easier when she didn't talk. The only sound in the shuttle was the intermittent beeping from the diagnostic console as Julia continued to run tests. Maggie glared at her father defiantly. He tried to lower his voice. The court was going to send you to a foster home unless I assumed custody, all right? I'm doing this because your mother wrote... The anger and sorrow that she had bottled up for so long could no longer be contained. Now that she was talking, she was going to let him have it. Oh, it's so noble of you to take up the burden of your child. I hate you! Shut up and listen, he growled. She seemed to him an unreasonable ball of pure fury and hatred. Now, I know I haven't been in your life for all these years. Your mother and I... He wondered if she would understand. He wondered if he himself understood how things turned out. It's complicated. Yes, complicated. You prefer communing with dead aliens to taking care of flesh and blood family. That is difficult to explain. The words punched him hard, and in them he heard an echo of his dead ex-wife. He waited until his breathing was even again. You don't have to like me. But I am responsible for you until you're no longer a minor. I'll leave you alone as much as possible, and you don't even have to talk to me. But you can make this easier for both of us by at least trying to be civil. The diagnostic console beeped loudly. Julia spoke. I've discovered the cause of the crash. The navigation system suffered an unusual number of single-bit hardware memory errors during the flyover. In fact, similar hardware errors are showing all over the systems. Bad memory chips? That's a possibility. I suspect it's related to your attempt to economise by using cheaper components during the last retrofitting. Maggie shook her head exaggeratedly. Right, and you'll take care of me just as you do your ship. The atmosphere of Pibeo contained little oxygen and was devoid of moisture. While there was no need for full environmental suits, James and Maggie had to wear oxygen masks and overalls to keep in the moisture. They gazed at the gargantuan ruins. Even the cubes forming the outer ring, much smaller than the megaliths in size, rose almost fifty metres into the air. The two humans were ants crawling about a giant's playground. Keeping his pledge to leave Maggie alone, James hiked towards the city without glancing at her. After a moment she followed, staying a few metres back. Secretly, James was relieved that he no longer had to strive to imitate some idealised vision of a good father. He couldn't do it, always knew he couldn't do it. Lauren had been right about him, and he didn't want to play act any more. The ring of cubes formed a solid wall. James aimed for a break where one of the cubes had crumbled. Up close they could see that it was made from smaller blocks held together by gravity and friction through an intricate mortise and tenon system. They climbed over the rubble. Maggie was athletic and nimble, scrambling over the broken stones like a mountain goat. James refrained from offering to help her. 
Beyond the break, the monumental pyramids loomed over the flat ground like towering mountains casting long and oppressive shadows. The city felt claustrophobic, despite the immense empty space between the pyramids. James took pictures of the large-scale writing on the smooth faces of the pyramids. There were several distinct scripts indicative of multiple languages. However, the inscriptions on every visible surface seemed identical. It was as if the same few sentences were repeated over and over. This isn't giving me much linguistic data to work with, James muttered to himself. Shouting at her father and the strenuous hike that followed had drained some of Maggie's anger. Her curiosity and a desire to show off got the better of her. They must have thought that whatever they wanted to say was really important to repeat it so many times, she said. Crude but effective data redundancy. She sounded like she was reciting from a book. James was amused, but he liked this version of Maggie better. He was more comfortable talking about work. You like information theory and that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm good with computers and... When I was little, I used to beg Mum to buy me books on xenoarchaeology and data preservation, and I went to archaeology camp. I knew all that stuff you said about the digital dark age. James pictured the young Maggie reading xenoarchaeology books. That must have driven Lauren crazy. He smiled. Then he wondered why a child who had never met her father nevertheless wanted to study the same thing she thought he studied. His nose tingled and felt itchy. He tried to keep the conversation going. What do you think of the pictures? He nodded at the many diagrams among the inscriptions, most still legible despite years of erosion. Maps of the city? The pictures depicted concentric circles with small squares, triangles, pentagons and circles in the spaces between the circles. Then Maggie frowned. But that doesn't make sense. They all look different. James took a few zoomed-in pictures of the drawings and compared them with the layout of the buildings generated from the aerial photographs. Maggie was right. The drawings didn't match the real layout and didn't match each other. And how could people, aliens, live in a city with only circular streets? I didn't see any roads coming out of the centre. James looked at her, impressed. That's very perceptive. Maggie rolled her eyes. The way she tilted her head was almost a carbon copy of Lauren's gesture. He felt a wave of tenderness. Actually, I don't think the people of Pi Bayo ever lived here. Aerial surveys showed no signs of burial sites or trash heaps nearby. I also scanned the buildings with ground-penetrating radar. They're completely solid. No space inside at all. It's probably not accurate to call this place a city. So what is it? I have no idea. Hopefully I can figure it out before it's gone forever in a week. How old is it? Best I can tell, Pi Bayo lost almost all its water about 20,000 years ago. Though I don't know exactly what happened, the process seemed to take only a few centuries. As the water ran out, the inhabitants fought over the diminishing supply. Every settlement I found was destroyed by warfare. The destruction was so complete that the robots recovered very few intact artefacts. But this place looks untouched. That's right. Thousands of kilometres from the nearest population centres, this place was left alone as Pi Bayo died. I want to know why. But they were aliens. Why do you care about them so much? They didn't even know about us. Resentment had crept back into her voice. She remembered again how he had never even tried to reach out to her, to know her even a little. That's true, he said. The change in her tone made him nervous. 
he did not want the furious, unreasoning child to return. The question also saddened him. He had never been good at articulating why his work meant so much to him, but he wanted to try. Maybe his daughter would understand him where his wife couldn't. The human race has explored the stars for a long time, yet we're still alone. All the alien civilizations we've found are dead. Most civilizations are very self-centered and focus only on the present. They don't think much about preserving a legacy for those who might come along after they're gone. Their art and poetry, their rise and fall, their brief time in the universe, most of that is beyond recovery. And in a week, the icy comets and asteroids sent by the terraformers will bombard this planet and bring water back to it. Even the last traces of their existence will be gone. But I always feel that there is a message that the people I study want to pass on. Whatever I discover will be the last testament and whisper of the people of Pybeo. In studying them, I become connected to them, and in passing on their message, the human race is no longer so alone. Maggie looked thoughtful and chewed her lips. James let out a held breath. He felt inexplicably happy as he watched his daughter nod, almost imperceptibly. The sun was sinking below the wall of cubes. It's getting late, James said. Let's come back tomorrow. While James prepared dinner in the galley, Julia tutored Maggie. As a holographic projection of the periodic table of elements floated in the air, the AI droned on about the properties of lanthanides. Having spent so many years with James Bell, the AI had acquired a taste for holding forth professorially. Gradually, Maggie's eyelids drooped and her head dipped forward. Julia stopped. You're not even trying. You've been out of school for two months already. How do you expect to catch up without putting in the effort? Don't yell at me. It's not like I wanted to be out of school. Julia modulated her voice to be gentler. I'm sorry. It must have been difficult losing your mother like that. What would you know about it? Maggie said angrily. I may be a machine, but I've been with Dr. Bell many years. I also knew your mother. Maggie's head snapped up. Tell me about my parents. What happened to them? I can't. That's personal. Maggie glanced at her father. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...figure moving in the galley. She would have to wait. Can't you move to a topic that's more interesting than chemistry? What do you consider interesting? How about some archaeology? Can we try to translate some of the text we found on the pyramids today? This was not on the recommended standard curriculum, but Julia decided to indulge her. All right. As you know, there's no possibility of a Rosetta Stone here, so guesses at meanings must rely on non-linguistic... Yes, yes, I know all that. Just show me the pictures of other writing you found that match anything we saw on the pyramids. Julia beeped in annoyance at being interrupted. But she made the periodic table disappear and projected in its place photographs of inscriptions found in other ruins on Pibao. These symbols appear to match a substring in the inscriptions on the pyramids. Maggie examined the photographs. Zoom out a bit. I want to see where you found them. Julia complied. Maggie furrowed her brows in puzzlement. The photographs were much harder to interpret than the neat drawings in archaeology books. She couldn't tell what she was looking at. Everything seemed to be piles of rubble. Julia remained silent, still miffed at Maggie. It's easier if you look at a 3D reconstruction, James said as he stepped out of the galley. Julia, put up the models and show Maggie where these symbols were found. The holographic projection now changed to reconstructions of tall, graceful alien buildings, honeycombed with windows and doors. Julia highlighted the areas where the match symbols were found. See any pattern? James asked. They're always found near doorways, Maggie said. Possible translation? Enter or exit? So, after all that work, we still can't figure out the most significant bit of the message, Maggie laughed. We still don't know if the inscriptions are saying, come in, welcome, or get out and stay out. It was the first time that James had heard her laugh, and he marvelled at how he could hear echoes of Lauren as well as himself in it. A wave of affection tinged with regret washed over him. Maggie tiptoed her way past her father's cabin and into the cockpit of the shuttle. Through the window she could see hundreds of bright streaks in the eastern sky. Promising destruction along with rebirth, the comet spayed the alien landscape in a silvery glow. She fumbled around for her father's headset, put it on, and whispered into the quiet dark, Julia, the AI answered in her earpiece. Yes? Tell me about my parents. Julia said nothing. Okay, we'll do it the hard way. Maggie slid forward and pulled out the keyboard from beneath the console. She punched some keys and watched as the head-up display on the cockpit window flashed into life. A blinking cursor appeared in the upper left-hand corner. She typed at the prompt. Define Ackerman. Heap. Fill. Lambda. All right, Julia broke the silence. Maggie smiled at the hint of a hiss in the AI's voice. No need to drop down into code like that. I'll grant you access, but I will inform Dr. Bell. You'll do no such thing, Maggie leaned forward and began to type again. Okay, okay. Don't be so glum. This isn't a real security breach. He won't be really mad if he finds out. 
And you can always blame it on the cheap memory chips that are generating all those hardware errors, Julia muttered incomprehensibly. Digging through her father's electronic archives, Maggie thought, was a lot like archaeology. For years she had studied the subject to feel closer to him, to maintain a sense of connection. For so long she had yearned to uncover the man her mother never talked about, to dig out the man who had abandoned her before she was born. Pictures, electronic messages, recordings and videos were the artefacts of a lost past, created by two people who did not have in mind a future viewer and who wrote and laughed and glanced at the cameras only for themselves. Yet somehow she felt that she was their intended audience. They had a message for her, a message maybe even they did not know they wanted to send. Maggie put the pieces in context, built a chronology. She excavated and reconstructed the mystery that was her father. The video showed the inside of a tiny studio apartment. Maggie gazed at the younger, smooth-shaven version of her father speaking into the camera. He was nervously playing with a small box in his hand. Julia, can you run the numbers again? The AI sounded exasperated. The numbers aren't going to change. I can search for a comparable ring that's cheaper. No, I don't want a cheaper ring. She deserves this one. Then I see no choice but for you to give up on that shuttle. You can't afford both. Now Maggie was looking at the younger version of her mother, alone in the same studio apartment from the previous video. Young Lauren was full of the glow of hope and youth. Maggie allowed herself to cry. She missed her mother so damn much. "'Thanks for letting me know, Julia,' Lauren said. "'Sometimes we have to save James from himself. "'You have a history of spilling his secrets to the women in his life,' Maggie whispered into the headset. Julia beeped once in protest and then went silent. Lauren admired the ring on her hand. "'It is beautiful.' She twisted it around her finger. But heavy. I tried to stop him from dragging you onto that roller coaster, Julia said. I know how much you hate those things, but he thought he had the best chance of you saying yes if he proposed just when you were scared and clinging to him. His chances were always one hundred percent. It will make a good story for the children some day. Lauren took off the ring. I'll tell him that my skin is allergic to the ring. "'and he has to return it. "'I'd rather he buy that shuttle "'and we'll wander the stars together, "'weighed down by nothing.' "'The video now showed the cockpit "'of a two-person shuttle, "'which Maggie recognised as the Arthur Evans, "'but a lot cleaner and newer-looking. "'James and Lauren sat in the two chairs. "'James sighed. "'I thought you wanted this. "'I did. "'Then what's changed?' Lauren bit her lip. We've been flying around the galaxy for five years. What exactly do we have to show for it? Twenty storage containers of broken artifacts, a few monographs that no one reads, dead aliens don't have descendants lobbying for cultural preservation, and all the civilizations we've studied collapsed before they made it off their home planets, so there's no technological payoff. Face it, people just don't care about dead aliens. I care. It matters to me that they be remembered and understood. A man wants to leave behind his name, and a civilization wants to leave behind its stories. I'm the only thing standing between them and oblivion. James, we aren't so young anymore. 
We can't wander the stars forever. We have to think about the future, about us. James's face hardened and his lips fused into a thin line. I'm not going to sit in an office at a desk just so we can buy a picket-fenced house on some freshly developed planet and pop out children. The terraformers move fast and I have to save whatever I can before they erase these mysteries forever. We can always come back to this life, be on the move again when the children are older. If we put roots down anywhere, we'll never leave again. Weight leads to more weight. You won't even give it a chance. Try it for a few years. I don't understand what's changed. You empathize so deeply with vanished aliens, but you can't feel what I want. This discussion is over. He got up and left the cockpit. Lauren sat still, alone. After a while, she sighed and caressed her belly. Why didn't you tell him? It was Julia. Lauren shook her head. If I tell him, he'll give in because he'll try to do the responsible thing. But he'll always resent me and the baby. I'd rather not have him at all than have him believe we weighed him down. I would have tried, you know. In the video, her father hadn't shaved for a few days. The cockpit was messy, unkempt, with food wrappers everywhere and dirty clothes draped on the chairs. He had been drinking. She didn't want to force you to pick between what you wanted to do and what you felt you had to do, Julia said. She thought I wasn't ready. He shot back. She didn't trust me. Maybe she was right. After breakfast, James prepared the hoverbike. He looked at Maggie, concerned. You have dark circles around your eyes. You didn't sleep well, did you? Maybe you should stay in the ship today and rest. But Maggie would not be dissuaded. She sat on the bike behind her father and put her arms around his waist. Then she leaned forward and put her face against his back. James couldn't move for a moment, overwhelmed by this gesture of trust. His mind flashed to the picture of baby Maggie, and suddenly he felt an overwhelming sense of tenderness towards the helpless bundle of pink, the tightly clutched fists and squeezed shut eyes. They covered ground quickly on the hoverbike, zooming towards the heart of the ruins. "'You've got to be kidding me,' James said as he brought the bike to a sudden halt. In front of them was the first of the many concentric circular streets that they had seen from the air. Only now did it become clear that the circle was not a street at all. It was a ditch with smooth walls that dropped straight down, over fifty metres deep and twice as wide. "'Moats inside the city,' Maggie was amused." I'm beginning to think that the message here is pretty simple. We don't want you to go to the centre. Then we really have to go. Maggie's expression was mischievous, childish. The secret must be a good one. James chuckled, but he shared Maggie's excitement. He folded the hoverbike into its compact storage form, like an old-fashioned suitcase. He tossed it down to the bottom of the ditch, where it clattered loudly before coming to rest. Then he took out the repelling hooks and cables and showed Maggie how to use them. She was a quick learner, and the two quickly descended to the bottom of the ditch, walked across and climbed up the other side. A few minutes later they stopped again at the foot of one of the giant pentagonal pyramids. "'Look at that,' James said. "'New pictures.' Besides the familiar repetitive inscriptions, there was a series of new picture panels along the bottom of the pyramid, like a comic strip. 
Which end do we start with? Maggie asked. James shrugged. No idea. You saw how all I've been able to do so far is pattern-matching sign groups, like ideographs. I don't know if the reading convention here is left to right, right to left, or something non-linear. Maggie decided to try left to right first. There were five panels. The first one contained the familiar map of the city. The next panel added two egg-shaped figures, each one with eight radiating legs. One egg in the centre of the city had curled legs and a body cross-hatched with thin lines. The other egg was far outside the city. These spider-like things are stylized drawings of the inhabitants of Pibeo, James said. Why is one of them all cracked? Not sure. But it could be a way to indicate that the figure is dead, sick, or not real. Something's wrong with it. In the third panel, both figures were drawn with smooth exteriors and straight legs. The one initially at the centre had moved some distance towards the edge of the city, while the other one had moved closer to the city. Could be a resurrection or rebirth myth, James said. In the fourth panel, both eggs moved even closer to each other, and in the last panel, the two eggs were united at the edge of the city, their legs entwined. Excited, Maggie picked up the theme. So this place is like a magical cave where you get to meet your loved ones as they return from death, she laughed. James laughed with her. He hadn't realised how much he'd missed having someone he loved with him as he explored these desolate ruins. He walked back from the last panel, his brows furrowed. But if you go from right to left, the story is very different. Two friends arrive at the city, and one decides to go in while the other decides to leave. The adventurous one dies at the centre. Then the title for your vision would be The Curse of the Pharaoh of Pibeo. Treasure hunters and future archaeologists beware. A horrible fate awaits if you don't leave right now. Maggie clapped her father on the back. This is too funny. We've got to prove the curse wrong. She's just like me, James thought. Fearless, curious, and so like her. That laugh. For a second he seemed to see Lawrence standing where Maggie was standing, looking as young as the day they said goodbye to each other. Lucky you. You miss the diapers and ear infections and sleep tantrums and the terrible twos and threes and fives, Lawrence said. But she was smiling at him. But you'll have to deal with the teenage years. I'm sorry, he said. I wish... He couldn't finish. She's really something, isn't she? She lifted her hand to brush away her hair. Her finger still wore the plain plastic ring that she used to replace the ring he had given her. His heart seemed to skip a beat, and his eyes became blurry and he could not see her anymore. Dad? Dad, what's wrong? He discreetly wiped his eyes. It was the first time she had called him Dad. He looked at Maggie and the feeling of being responsible for her was not heavy at all. It felt like a pair of wings. Nothing. The wind. Let's go to the centre. He put his arm around her shoulder. I saw signs of very powerful weapons being used at the other sites on Pibeo. The people who built this place were technologically advanced, and I don't think these warnings were just superstition. I think they were trying to warn intruders away from some real danger. What danger could last twenty thousand years? 
I don't know. But I believe this is a situation that calls for caution. Maggie looked at her father wide-eyed. I thought she wanted to understand their message. James felt the pull of the mystery at the centre. Hints of danger had always made it more interesting for him, and he yearned to give in to it to do as Maggie suggested. He remembered the feeling of Maggie leaning her head against his back on the bike. There are more important things than dead aliens and their messages. Things are different now, he said. Slowly, a bit reluctantly, he turned the bike around. It's too risky. I don't understand what's changed. He looked at her, and instead of answering, he pulled her into a hug. She stiffened for a second and then yielded to his embrace. Maggie tossed and turned, unable to sleep. She had suggested that some of the robots be sent to investigate the centre of the city. It would have been safer than going themselves, but James had said no. The robots were needed to complete the repair of the Arthur Evans before the comets arrived. The more Maggie thought about it, the more she was convinced that there was no real danger. Her father claimed that the civilization here had reached a higher level of technology, but this place was built with stones and had cartoons carved into them. That sounded like a temple of superstition, not an advanced military installation with booby traps that still functioned after 20,000 years. Things are different now, he had said. She remembered the wistful look on his face as he gave up their exploration. Her father believed that dead aliens had stories worth telling, but he also loved her mother, and he would have, was beginning to, would love her. I'd rather not have him at all than have him believe we weighed him down. She got dressed. Julia, James called from his bunk. You can't sleep. I can't seem to let the puzzle go. I thought so. Julia turned on the light. James sat up. Scan through those maps of the city. There must be a pattern in them. Julia spoke up after a few minutes. I think I have something. The seven ditches divide the city into seven concentric bands with a small circle in the middle. While the locations of the pyramids change in each picture, the numbers and shapes of the pyramids within the bands are constant. Julia projected a table onto the wall of James's cabin. Good, but what's their meaning? James asked. I can do a brute force search in the databases for these numbers to see if anything turns up. Do it. I'll keep on playing with them to see if I can spot anything. The comets were much closer now. In their pale light, the ground seemed to be covered by frost. Maggie made good progress on the hoverbike. She had cajoled Julia into releasing the equipment to her and swore the AI to secrecy. It's just like with my mum. I don't want him to resent me, she said to Julia. I'll prove that he won't have to change because of me. It was difficult to climb up from the bottom of the first ditch with the hoverbike strapped to her back. I won't wear you down, she muttered, and pulled herself up another notch. Each successive ditch was deeper and wider than the one before. She was covered in sweat after a while, and the night air no longer seemed so cold. Finally, after crossing the last ditch, she saw in the centre an immense rock column rising hundreds of metres into the sky like an accusatory finger. James felt a bit nauseous and dizzy. 
too many things were happening. The crash, memories of Lauren dealing with Maggie. He hadn't been eating or sleeping well. He tried to clear his mind. Ninety-two pyramids arranged in concentric circles like crystalline shells. An image from the evening before. Maggie falling asleep from boredom as Julia droned on about the periodic table came unbidden to his mind. He smiled and imagined his daughter sleeping soundly in the cabin next to his. He wanted to get up and just go stare at her sleeping form. Julia, I've got it! Julia chirped expectantly. The plan of this city is a model of the atom, but not a model we are familiar with. The concentric circles are electron shells, and the structures represent electrons in different orbitals. Here, bring up one of the pictures so I can show you. Julia projected one of the diagrams onto the wall of the cabin. James pointed to it as he went on. The tetrahedons are electrons in S orbitals, and the squares P's, the pentagons D's, the cones F's. This is a uranium atom, atomic weight 92 with 92 electrons. That would explain all the hardware errors. The chill running down his spine cut through James's euphoria. I thought those were from cheap memory chips. That was my original theory, but a source of alpha particles nearby would explain the frequency of the errors much better. Since all the radiation shielding and monitors are still in orbit, I can't be sure. But given that uranium is the most common naturally occurring fissile material, a stylized representation of it is a good symbol to indicate the presence of radiation. James was stunned. You think this place is a giant radiation warning site? How long until we can take off? I can rush the repairs and get them done in a few hours. But I have to tell you something about Maggie. Jagged rocks and what appeared to be glass shards covered the ground between the last ditch and the rock column. Maggie was glad that she was on a hoverbike. On foot, this final stretch would be a nightmare. The builders really didn't want anyone to get through. She made it to the foot of the spike. This was it. She would uncover the mystery at the centre of the ruins and prove to her father that she was not going to be a burden. They could have been a family among the stars. There was a cave at the foot of the spike. Maggie strapped the bright flashlight to her helmet and went in. The cave spiralled downwards. She felt flushed and stopped for a moment to wipe the sweat from her forehead. This no-sleep thing is finally catching up to me, she thought. At the bottom of the cave was a metallic barrier. Maggie cut a hole through it with the torch cutter on her excavation multi-tool. She crawled through. Inside... The cavern was full of glass spheres packed in layers. She picked one up. It was about half a metre in diameter. Tiny metallic beads were suspended inside, packed into a tight lattice. Illuminated by her flashlight, the beads threw off brilliant rainbows of colour. The sphere felt very heavy and hot. As he rushed into the alien ruins on his bike, James swore at Julia and himself. I thought it was best to let her go, Julia had tried to defend herself. I wanted to give her a chance to prove herself, the way you and Lauren never gave yourselves a chance. The people of Pi Bao had nuclear power. Knowing that it would take eons for the spent fuel to decay to safe levels, they had buried the waste here, as far away from civilization as possible. 
Maybe they knew that their planet was drying up, or maybe they were just cautious. But they tried to build this place so that it would warn their descendants or future visitors from the stars. Even as they were dying, they thought to look outside themselves and speak to the future. They tried to encode the message at different levels in multiple ways. They built with stone, the only material that would last millions of years. They hoped that the message would be understood universally. There is nothing of value here. Danger, stay away. He had understood it only too late. Recklessly, he hurried down the ditches and scrambled up the other side. His breathing became jagged and he turned up the oxygen feed to his mask. All the while he thought about the invisible particles speeding at him, streaming through him, tearing apart cells and tissues. He was beyond the last ditch. Maggie! he shouted. At the foot of the monstrous spike of rock at the centre, a tiny figure waved at him. He twisted the handle of his hoverbike and was by her in a minute. Maggie was standing next to twenty, thirty glass spheres. Her face was flushed and full of sweat. Aren't these beautiful, she said. Dad, there are many more down there. I did it. I found their secret. We can do this together. Then she collapsed, pulled off her mask and vomited. He picked her up and carried her to the bike and rolled as fast as he could away from the spheres until he had to stop by the ditch. In Maggie's weakened state, there was no way for her to rappel down the ditch or to climb up the other side by herself. He couldn't carry her safely on a single cable either. He prayed that Julie would be able to finish the repair of the ship in time to pick them up. Meanwhile, they were stuck here, exposed to the deadly waste of a bygone civilization. He looked down at Maggie's feverish face. She had been exposed for much longer than he, and she was smaller. She might not make it until Julia arrived. He had to bury the spheres again to reduce her exposure. He had to approach the source of the deadly radiation. Gently he laid Maggie down on the ground, rode back to the spheres and carried them one by one back down into the cave. He worked fast and tried not to think about what was happening to his body. There's hope yet, he thought. Julia will be here with the ship soon. Maggie and I can both be put in stasis until we get to a hospital. When he came back, Maggie struggled to sit up. Dad, I don't feel well, she croaked. I know, baby. Those spheres made you sick. Just hold on a bit longer. He shifted to place his own body between her and the spike at the centre, as if his flesh would cushion her from the high-energy particles. It would make a difference. The loud whirring of propellers drowned out everything. Floodlights covered them. Julia had arrived with the Arthur Evans. He carried Maggie limp in his arms onto the ship. His skin felt raw, burnt. Julia, get the stasis chamber ready. Maggie, don't be scared. You're just going to sleep for a bit. Maggie was safely inside the chamber, and she nodded as she closed her eyes. James was thirsty, dizzy, and very tired. He took a last look at the navigation panel. He was about to give Julia the order to take off and step into the stasis chamber himself. Red lights blinked on the panel. Hardware errors. A launch into planetary orbit was a delicate operation. There would be no tolerance for single-bit errors. For a moment, pure rage at himself, at the builders of the site, at the dead civilization of Pi Bayo, at the universe, overwhelmed him. They were going to die, 
killed by an ancient riddle that he could not solve in time. "'I'm not scared,' Maggie, half-dreaming, whispered hoarsely. He looked at her. There was a light smile on her sleeping face. She trusted him completely. He knew what he had to do. He was ready, as he had always been without knowing it. He leaned down into the stasis chamber. As she woke at his touch, he brushed the hair out of her eyes and kissed her on the forehead. Listen, Maggie. Once I get the ship into orbit, Julia will send out a distress signal. The terraformers should pick you up and come to get you in a few months. Don't worry. Julia will keep you in a suspended animation until they can get you to a real hospital. They should be able to fix you up good as new. I'm really sorry, Dad. It's all right, sweetheart. You're impulsive and you want answers the same as me. He paused. No. Better than me. You've always known what really matters. When I wake up, we'll explore the universe together and tell everyone the stories of dead worlds. He took a deep breath and held it for a moment. She deserved to know the truth. I won't see you again, baby. This is goodbye. What? She struggled to get up. He pushed her down. It's too risky to let Julia fly the ship. The radiation is causing too many hardware errors. That's what made us crash in the first place. I have to fly the ship manually on analogue controls. By the time I get us into orbit, the radiation sickness will have progressed too far in my body for stasis to be effective. I won't make it, Maggie. I'm sorry. No, let Julia fly the ship. You need to be here with me. I can't lose both, he interrupted her. You have been the best mystery I have ever worked on. I love you. Before she could speak again, he closed the chamber cover. He felt feverish and delirious. He imagined the merciless rays cutting into him, the residual heat of a dead civilization. But he was not afraid or sad or angry. Even as they were dying, the people of Pybeo strove to save those who would come after them. He was doing the same now for his daughter. This was a story that would always mean something, a message worth passing on, even in a universe that was cold, dark and dying. The comet was so bright in the sky, everything would start afresh again. He pulled back on the joystick and felt the planet fall away. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Ken's. Ken, big thank you. Honestly, what a star, thank you so much. And Nick, big hug, lad, big hug. Way to go. Next up is our very own Simon Hildebrand. Now, I can claim now, yes, he is our very own Simon Hildebrand, host of Protecting Project Pulp. Have a listen out for that. And he's coming up now with his game in the future, Simon. Hi, my name's Simon Hildebrandt, and welcome to Gaming the Future, where we explore the intersection of great games and great science fiction. This episode, I'll be talking about Another World, 
famous for its innovative graphics and gameplay, but also for its unique sci-fi storyline. Another World, also known as Out of This World in North America and Outer World in Japan, is the brainchild of Eric Chahi, a French computer game designer who started developing games in 1983. In 1989, he worked with Paul Cassette on the game Future Wars for Delphi and Software, and with the money from that, he financed the development of an ambitious new project. Inspired by the flat colour animations of the game Dragon's Lair, the artwork of Michael Whalen, Richard Corbin, Frank Miller, and Frank Fazita, and works of fiction like Dune and Hyperion, he began laying the narrative and technical groundwork for a cinematic science fiction adventure in the vein of Karateka and Impossible Mission. And this game is very cinematic, for several reasons. Firstly, stripped of health bars and other interface components, the visuals are more immediate and immersive than other, more cluttered titles. Secondly, Chahi pioneered a vector graphics technique that permitted large, smooth animations, animations he created based on videos he shot of himself performing various actions. Thirdly, the same animation technique is used through the cinematic sections, making the game more cohesive and blurring the line between the cinematic and playable parts of the game. Another reason relates to the way the game was developed over time. Chahi says that each section was built in chronological order as he experimented with themes and pace. This allowed the game to grow organically and to incorporate ideas and feelings he was experiencing at the time. This leads to a real sense of uncertainty and adventure as the player explores a twisting and unpredictable storyline. That storyline sees our protagonist, a physicist named Lester Knight Chaikin, involved in an accident involving a particle accelerator and transported to an alien world. Over the course of the game, Lester explores his strange new environment, encounters various indigenous life forms, mostly deadly, is imprisoned by the native humanoids, affects prison break with the help of a fellow prisoner, fights a pitched battle through an alien complex, and ultimately escapes the clutches of his captors to an uncertain destiny. It's a compelling narrative folding in a lot of classic sci-fi ideas. Lester is truly a stranger in a strange land, completely ignorant of the culture or even the language of the aliens he encounters, unable to guess at their values or motivations. Only a shared desperation for freedom allows him to bridge this chasm and form a partnership of sorts with one of the natives. The world Lester is exploring is similarly rich with science fiction detail. Bizarre alien creatures, stark alien landscapes and architecture and mysterious alien technology all contribute to its immersive appeal. All of these components work cooperatively with the gameplay too, providing a variety of interesting puzzles and several authentically heart-stopping moments of action throughout the player's progress through the game. That's where Another World really shines for me. Its balance of action, puzzle-solving, stunning visuals and compelling story unite in a game experience never really matched before or since. And that's why I recommend it unreservedly. Over the years, a variety of versions have been published on platforms as diverse as the Amiga, Atari ST, the SNES, Sega CD, Sega Genesis, Apple IIGS, 3DO, DOS, Symbian, Windows Mobile. But currently, I'm guessing listeners would be more interested in GOG.com's 15th Anniversary Edition for Windows or one of the mobile versions. It's currently available for both iOS and Android. Thanks for listening. This episode marks the end of the first series of Gaming the Future. We'll be taking a break as I gather more material, so keep those suggestions coming. 
and look out for Series 2 right here on the sofa. Our music is by Cheap Shot from the album Streets of Bass, used with permission. Links to that and everything else I've mentioned in the show notes. There you go. Simon, what a star. Yes, good luck to your voyages on Protecting Project Pub. That is it for Starships over 276. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you like what we do, do think about donating. We could do with it. I just had this present moment. You know, we think a little bit strapped after Christmas. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. This is a star... <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everybody. <coughs> Welcome.